0: Okay, hey, let's open up to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to be in le- uh, verses 11 through 24 this morning. 1 John 3, 11 through 24. As you make your one way there, uh, one of the reason, one of the main reasons that John is writing this letter well, let me just put this. I mean, there's there's a reason why every single letter is written. There's there's reasons why they're writing. There's a context. There's real things going on in real time with real people. There's real apostles with real, uh, real believers, and there's real attacks going on. There's real situations, and these guys are writing. The apostles are writing to the church quite often to address something, to encourage something, to exhort, to push people in a certain direction to protect them from some false teaching. This is what John is doing. And as we look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, uh, we, we kind of are, are immersed back into the idea that John is trying to encourage the church. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, we, we read, this is a little later, in the, obviously, in the epistle, uh, but he's writing to let them know one of the reasons why he's doing all of this. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God. Who is that? Is that anyone in here? Hopefully do you believe in the name of the son of God that you may know, you may gnosco that you have eternal life. You will absolutely with certainty, intimately know that you have eternal life. John wants you to know that you have eternal life. How many of you struggle and you wonder with that day after day? sometimes you you wrestle with this. John wants to give proofs over and over and over and indicators that you and I might know with certainty the work that God has done on our behalf. And he's writing to combat the false teachers who were, who crept in among the believers and, 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 and have kind of tried to shipwreck their faith. And so he's coming in, he's bolstering, he's cutting down their, False teaching. He say, "No, this is the truth. Remember the truth. This is who you are in Christ. This is what you were taught." Last week in chapter two, verse twenty-eight, John wrote, "And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence, assurance, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming." We will read again today in verse nineteen, chapter three, verse nineteen. He says, "By this we shall know." that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Know with certainty and have reassurance in our hearts before him. And There's several other examples of this in the book of first John. I didn't want to belabor them, but that the believers, the one who's reading this might have confidence before God that we might know with certainty, we have eternal life. And John gives several ways in which uh, we as believers might have that confidence before God, through this, throughout this letter, as we read last week, we saw John make the point in chapter two, verse 29. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who what practices righteousness has been born of him. One of the assurances that he gives us is that, listen, one of the indicators that you have been born again, that this has happened is that you, you now practice righteousness. There's been a change in your life. You're now following after the Lord. It is your practice to, do, to follow him, to obey him. And he repeats himself over and over that those who are truly born again are those who practice righteousness. Again, chapter three, verse three, John says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And again, in chapter three, verses seven and eight, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And so one of the ways that we can be assured that we have uh, eternal life is that we practice righteousness. That's not that you get eternal life by practicing righteousness. It is a fruit of eternal life. The fact that something has happened inside of you, that is the difference between religion and a born again uh, relationship with Jesus Christ. And then, as we left off in verse 10, John continuing with this theme, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And here's his little hook at the end, which he wants to talk about next and re-go into. He says, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so, God is built within the believer mechanisms that we can, that's kind of sounds pretty sterile, but a way for us to have confidence before God, right? A way for us to know with certainty that we have eternal life, that we're walking in the light, that we have this assurance. It's that we practice righteousness, that our lives are lived out in Christ likeness. And and then John verse 10, there once again wraps it back around to the other main theme is that we have love for our brothers and sisters. He says there in the end of verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother or sister. You can throw that in there. So if someone doesn't practice righteousness, they're not of God. If that isn't the practice of their life. And in the same way, if someone does not love his brother, they are not of God. I don't know about you, but there's two themes there. Obedience in love right? Obedience and love. How many of you heard that before? Love and obey. Anyone else? Yeah. John. It, it, yeah. How many of you've heard the elders and I repeat that. The, our church's theme, you know, we created this wonderful thing. We thought of something new is fantastic. No one's ever heard of it before. We exist to glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. Oh, that's not really hip and cool and cut trend setting. And it's not on the, you know, listen, We're not here to make new doctrine. We're not building upon something fun and fantastic and new and, you know, and all this type of stuff. What does verse 11 say? What does John say as we pick up in verse 11? For this is the message that you've heard. What? From the beginning. John's going, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm reminding of what you already know, the foundation of the gospel. Loving God and loving one another. Loving God is manifested in righteousness and purity and following after him. And then if you love God, that's going to be manifested in your relationships to one another. Simple as that. If that change has truly taken place. And so we pick up in verse 11 and John says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Believers walk righteously and that's going to be manifested in love you. Look around you right now. This is who the one another is supposed to be. Yeah, that person. (laughs) Let's look around. Love one another, right? Person at home. Love one another. Now, once again, John's bringing them back to what they heard from the beginning. When they first came to faith, when you come to Jesus, you're called to live righteously and you're called to love one another. This is, these are the very basic fundamental commands of, of Christianity. This is something that God wants to do in and through every single one of us. And again, John is doing what he, just, what he heard when he was with Jesus. This isn't something he's creating out of the blue. He was in an upper room the night before Jesus was going to be crucified. The night he was betrayed, he was leaning at a table. Jesus was right next to him. And Jesus is speaking to the guys there in the room, everybody that was in the room. In John 13, Jesus told them a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, verse 35, John 13, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, John, I think out of all the apostles, you know, we can't speak for all the other apostles, but the apostle John is called the apostle of love. How many of you have heard that? John is the apostle of love. And by the time we're done with 1 John, you'll definitely know why. Because he keeps rapping back to it over and over and over. But in John 13, as John described the Last Supper, the beginning of that chapter, he, he begins by saying this as he's describing the scene. He says, now before the Feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of his world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He's talking about he loved me. He loved those other guys and those gals in that room. He said, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. When he looked at Christ, he was just blown away about the love of Christ. How he loved him to the end. And again, in verse twenty-eight, when Jesus said uh, that one of one of them was going to betray him. So that you start out when he's 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 doing this scene and they're in that upper room. Jesus, in the midst of all this teaching, says, "One of you is going to betray me." They're all looking around, going, "What in the world is going on here? One of you is going to betray me." Verse twenty-three says, "One of whom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus's side." John's writing his gospel. And as we know, we already went through the gospel of John. He's saying, I'm that guy. He calls himself all throughout the, the, the uh, book of John, the gospel of John. He says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. He felt incredibly loved by the Lord. He knew tangibly the love of God in his life, and it radically changed him. Here was John, the son of thunder. How many of you are into like, justice and righteousness and stuff. I kind of like that stuff too, you know, and here John is at the end of his life. He's you remember John's like, someone's like messing with the Lord. He's like, can we call down fire on him? That's, that was his answer. Can we call down fire? Oh, can we please like, I just want to use this new gift. You've given me fire. no. You know, let's torch him. And here's this 90-year-old man, 90-something-year-old man at the end of his life. He's been transformed by the love of God. Not that he's not feisty, he is. But man, John mentions the word love 56 times in his gospel. 56 times. Three, it's more than all the other three gospels combined. John mentions love 56 times. 46 times here in 1 John. He is consumed with the love of God. And the point being that John was totally transformed by the love of God. And here's the thing. We're living in a culture that does not know what that means. The love of God. We have perverted the love of God to mean something that it does not mean. Here is John who spoke of the love of God more than anyone else. As he keeps hammering and hammering and hammering the love of God, having been impacted by the love of God in the same breath, That same man is preaching righteousness and purity in the church. They're a package deal. You see, they don't contradict one another. They are a package deal with Jesus. John makes it clear that those who are born of God have received the grace and mercy of God through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there is no way that they are not transformed. Believers walk righteously and we love one another. Just because, uh, just as we have received that mercy and love, we give it out to others, our brothers and sisters. You see, light versus darkness. This is what John's talking to. He's talking to the church saying, listen, there's light, who you are of, and there's darkness that's creeping in. I'm not telling you anything new. Look at, look at who's teaching you. Look at what's going on there. There's light darkness. There's born again, versus not born again. There's children of God, versus children of the devil. He just makes it clear as day. Verse 11, for this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 12, we should not be like who? Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, his literal brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were what? Evil, He practiced unrighteousness and his brothers were what? Were righteous. He practiced righteousness. So John goes back to the very first act of murder in the the entire Bible. Genesis uh, chapter four, ladies, you'll get there soon. Genesis chapter four, Cain murders his brother Abel back in Genesis four. And what John reveals to us is the motive for the murder. He says, it was because Cain's deeds were evil and Abel's were righteous. Now, both brothers were apparently required by God. I'm not going to go back and read the whole thing, but uh, they were required by God to bring a sacrifice to God, apparently. And Abel was a shepherd and he brought a flock, uh, one of a firstborn, uh, a, a firstborn sheep and, and offered the fat portions and all this type of stuff to God. And then Cain, he was a farmer and so he brought, the first, he brought his fruits. He didn't say first fruits, he just brought fruit, uh, the, the, the labor of his hands and, and gave it before God. As an offering. And it says there that Cain and his offering were rejected and Abel and his were accepted. Now, some believe that that Cain brought an unacceptable uh, sacrifice, that it should have been a blood sacrifice. It should have been that. It's not spelled out there. We don't know that. It's not spelled out, but some link it because we have a picture of the firstborn lamb and all that type of stuff in Christ. I think it's a beautiful connection. That might be the case. It may have been that Abel didn't bring the first fruits or the best, but we often look to what people bring and that's that's what we always look to. What are they giving as opposed to the attitude in which they're bringing it in? And that's what I think is the key issue here. There's a lot of merit to all those positions, but what John tells us is that Cain Was of the evil one. That tells you evil ones can go to church and put things in the offering plate. And the reason that Cain murdered Abel, because Abel's deeds were righteous while Cain's were evils. And I think the issue was that Cain had hate in his heart for his brother. Cain had hate in his heart for his brother. Abel walked in righteousness. Cain walked in unrighteousness. And what John is doing here is going back to the beginning and giving us a picture of the difference between those who are the children of the devil and those who are of the children of God. That's what he's doing. He's just taking this old Testament illustration. He says, this is the difference this is a real practical difference about the two, those who are in the world. And those who are of God. You see evil can't stand righteousness. The dark cannot stand the light. Cain could not stand Abel's righteousness. The devil cannot stand God nor his children. So what it is. And John says, don't be like Cain. Don't go down that road who is an illustration or a type of the unbeliever. Verse 13. And guess what? Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that Cain hates Abel. Make sense? Don't be surprised that the world walking in unrighteousness hates those walking after the Lord, the, the Lord, right? In righteousness. As you live in Christ likeness and righteousness and purity and love, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Verse 14 is basically don't, don't focus on the fact that you're hated by the world, but here's what you need to focus on. Verse 14. We need, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love The brothers, whoever does not love abides in death. One of the ways you know for sure that you have eternal life, that you've passed from death to life, that you've been born again, however many different ways and words the the Gospels describe this transition that happens by God's grace, is that you now possess a God-given love for one another. An agape love sacrificial love, the fruit of the Spirit of God within a believer is first of all what? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Yeah, Galatians 5.22, right? Love for God, first of all. What does that look like? Walking in purity, obedience, righteousness, right? You love God, you'll obey me. And then he says, this is my command. Secondly, that you love one another as I have loved you, right? Obedience and love. Whoever does not love abides in death. There hasn't been that thing that happens. This is real. This is this is challenging, isn't it? Looking at our own lives. What's my walk look like? Do I really love my brothers and sisters? Do I love my wife? Do I love my kids like Jesus loved me? Hmm. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. What? <laughs> Jeez. John, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. What did Cain do to Abel? He murder him. murdered him, right? And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What's he saying there? John is... Recalling the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. I'll read them to you. 21 through 26. He says, You have heard that it was said to you of old, You shall not what? You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable of judgment. If you go murder someone, In our society, you're going to be judged for it and you're going to go away or you're going to die yourself. One of those things is going to happen, hopefully, right? Not hopefully that you do it. Hopefully the judgment happens, right? So Jesus is speaking about the law of Moses here, right? Thou shall not kill. It's not talking about animals and PETA. It's talking about murdering of humans. He says, you've heard this, but verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is what? angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Wait a second. Same word used for those who are in murder. Murderers get judged. People who are angry with their brothers get judged. Same word, same terms. Makes a little squeamish, right? What are you getting at, Jesus? Jesus gives us insight into what God's intent and law was. His holy standard. Jesus made it clear that a person will be guilty of murder, not only for the act of murder, but for the attitude of murder. Yikes. It's not the action only. It is what led to the action. Your heart towards your brother. You see, murder comes out of the heart of a person. And hate and anger towards a brother is the root, and God sees it all. We can't see that most of the time. God looks into the inner workings of our hearts, and he says, If you have hate in your heart towards your brother, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you're guilty of murder and you're guilty before me. See, Jesus didn't come to make the law easier. He made it to become impossible because it wasn't just an external law. It's an internal law. It isn't just an external righteousness. I went to church. I gave my tithe. I said hello to someone. I walked someone across the street. It's actually a kingdom of the heart. There's been a change inside. There's been a righteousness of Christ put inside of us, and this is the motive for which why we do what we do. It's different. The only standard that the world that will be acceptable for God is absolutely 100% sinless perfection, and that is only found in one person and one person alone. That is the pure, righteous Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. Murder comes out of the heart of a person. And it's worse. Jesus goes on in Matthew 5:22. Can you imagine sitting there? Got a bunch of Jews who are sitting around going, I haven't murdered anybody. Hooray. And he goes, okay, well, it's, you're going to be guilty before God if it's anger. Okay, anger, great. And he goes, verse 22 says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Any insulting going on lately? Anyone who ever says you fool, anybody called anybody fools lately? You will be liable of what? Hell of fire. Yikes. Going back to Cain for a second, Cain hated his brother, and the murder followed. Abel's deeds were righteous, Cain's were evil. And this is why I don't think it was primarily about the sacrifice that Abel and Cain gave. It is important. I don't want to dismiss that. But I think what all these teachings imply is. It was about Cain's attempt to worship God when he had hate in his heart for brother, his brother, it was unacceptable. And God called Cain on it then. And the son of God does the same thing here in verse 23 of Matthew five, where he continues on and says, after he tells everybody, Hey, listen, it's not just murder. It's not just an attitude. It's not just what you say. All those things will lead you guilty. Listen, you've got a problem. And here's the problem. Hopefully, you realize there's there's an offense that's happened before God. Verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Not even you have something against your brother. Your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. Notice he's using the word brother. He's linking things back to Genesis. He's linking it all the way through. You got something wrong. Your brother has something wrong with you. Do not even attempt to worship God. Lay it down. Leave your gift there at the altar and go. First what? Be what? Reconciled to your brother and then come and offer offer your gift. Yikes. You see, the righteous worship of God is in spirit and in truth. We don't worship God when we have hate in our hearts for someone else, let alone that knowing that they have hate in their hearts towards us or something against us. You see, righteousness isn't just, uh, well, they just got to come to me. No, it's what did God do with us when we offended him? He pursued us. That's the model. He sent his son coming after us. He loved his enemy. You see, that's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever when it comes down to the root. Is we can't let that stuff go on if Christ is in us. Believers can't let that go on. We leave our offering, we go and pursue. Lord, help us. Amen? Why? Because we love our brothers and sisters, and this is worship to God. We go see them out like the Lord did to us. And Jesus in Matthew 5 is telling his listeners that this is what God requires. Verse 25 of Matthew 5. He says, so what do you do when this isn't, if this is the reality of your life? Notice what he says here. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's confusing. You're going, what's going on here? He's telling me not to be angry. Okay. Is it the person I need to be angry with? I need to go fix it out. He's like, yeah, but you've got a bigger problem. Who's, who do you think the accuser is going to be? Who's the accuser that we need to settle things lest we be put into a place where we can't get out forever and ever and ever. Who's he talking about? Talking about God. He's serious about this stuff? Come to terms quickly with the Lord on this. Do not let it sit around because the penalty is truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Who's the accuser? It's God. Another great passage of this is Matthew 18, verse 21 through 25. You can mark that down. I won't go through it right now, but Matthew 18, really important. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. Remember, and this, this deals with church discipline. Matthew 18 deals with church discipline. How often you forgive your brother, seven times seven, no, seven times 70. All those verses, um, going to someone who offends you. If they don't have it, you bring someone else and then someone else, then you tell it to the church. And then he tells this parable of, of the unforgiving servant, just to bring this thing home that we pursue righteousness. We pursue love. We pursue forgiveness in light of the forgiveness we've been given. He says there in this parable, verses 32, 35, but basically, or or 21 through 25, he says, the real quick version is, a king forgives one of his servants of an insurmountable debt. It's lifetime's worth of wages that this guy owed his king. The king had mercy on him and he forgave him. And then that servant goes out starts to extract payment from someone who owes him a day's wage, whatever it was, without mercy. The king hears about this. He pulls this guy who would not forgive this guy in front of him. He says, listen, I forgave you all this stuff. Read it. It says in verse 32 through 25, I'll I'll read it for you. It says, Then his master summoned and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, righteous anger, the anger of the Lord, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And the picture is he's never going to pay all his debt. Verse 35 So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Ugh. There's no room for unforgiveness and hate in the heart of a believer for a brother. In light of the great mercy we've been given. Now, so don't be like Cain. What this is saying, uh, what this isn't saying, let me just say that, is believers are not sinless. We do sin. Uh, we do get annoyed with one another. Amen? Perhaps my announcement this morning annoyed you. <laughs> it's kind to of Perhaps we're not going to see eye to eye on things. Perhaps we even get really, really angry with one another. Has that ever happened with, between you and a... In another believer? All the married people, keep your hands down. It's not saying that those things don't happen. What it's saying is that by the love and forgiveness we have received, the great mercy and the great grace that God has given us, there's no place to let that fester and continue in our hearts. Amen? Amen. We go to the cross and we go to one another. That hate typifies the world around us. Don't be like Cain. Our witness is our love for one another. That's our witness. We, we bring it to the cross. We forgive one another. We deal with things head on. Back to verse 1, John three sixteen. Uh, sorry, verse uh, 16 of 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. It's amazing how many three sixteen verses are on the cross. First Timothy three sixteen, just a bunch of amazing ones. But by this we know love. You want to know what love is? That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The love that John is calling to us isn't a mysterious love. I mean, it is, and like, why in the Lord would you love me? But it's not. It's it's we. It's tangible. We. We've experienced it as believers. We know it. We know it. We intimately know it. God's deep love that was demonstrated for us. The love John is talking about is Christ's sacrificial love for you, for me on the cross. He died for you, for me. John says in, said in John 15, 13, he's re- recalling the words of Jesus. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. And again, this was said in the upper room the night before he was crucified. And so Jesus loved us by dying for us. That's the ultimate act of love. No greater love. And if this is the example that he gave for us, if God paid the ultimate sacrifice, How do you think we are to live practically day to day towards one another? Yes, the Lord might call you to physically lay down your life one day for your brother in that ultimate sacrifice that might come probably not, but until then, we're to live in love in light of that ultimate sacrifice. Christ is our example, living sacrificially for one another. Verse 17, we're almost there. But if anyone has the world's goods, and sees it of his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them. How does God's love abide in him? So how does that ultimate sacrifice actually get down into your life and in your world? Make sense? How does Jesus dying change your daily life? Well, he gives us a real simple example. He says, listen, if anyone has the world's goods and you guys have the world's goods, y'all look clothed like you're well put together pretty much in general. I mean, the poorest of the poor in, in our country are incredibly, they have a, a, an, an amazing advantage. I'm not saying they aren't difficult, because that's not what I'm saying. An amazing advantage to the poverty that this world has to offer. I don't even want to go into what happened, you know, describe North Korea and some of these places that they're talking about. Of, It's just, it's just horrid of what's going on. But if you see, if you have the world's good and you see your brother in need, yet you close your heart against him, how does God's love really abide in you? See, love doesn't close off its heart to its brother or sister. Now, we need to have wisdom. Oh, man, I need $1,000 to pay off my phone bill. What? It doesn't sound like a need. We need to have a Bible study here. You know what I mean? Like, how did that happen? Oh, don't judge me, brother. No, that's, we need to, we need to, it's not a need. I need money to buy, you know, to buy some booze. Oh, don't, you know, I don't want to judge them. Whatever they do with the money is fine. It's like, you don't, love isn't giving something to someone so they can go destroy themselves, okay? I understand you've got to make those decisions on the fly but it's not loving to perpetuate sin or sinful behavior. So we exercise godly wisdom. But the point here is that we're not to close off our hearts to one another in the various needs that we face. There were real people who needed clothing, food, shelter, just practical things in their day. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Just today, can you give us our food to eat? How did that happen? Often through the body of Christ. There's those needs today, but we are to be attentive to one another in our needs. Not in just our basic needs, but just in loving acts towards one another. What would you do to someone else if you were in that situation? What would you do to yourself if you were in that situation? How would you take care of yourself? So we're to be attentive, looking for ways to bless one another, to meet one another's needs. And the principles in verse, verse 18. Little children, let us not love in what? Word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We aren't just to talk, we're to act according to God's truth. Verse 19 and by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Again, that confidence of salvation before the Lord. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Verse 20, a little confusing. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Now, what does John mean? It could mean a couple of things, but I think John is saying Uh, that I've just talked to you about loving one another and John lets us know two things um, that will reassure our hearts. I think first in verse 20, it says, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. One of the assurances that we have in our hearts that we're the Lord is the Lord disciplines us. He condemns us when we go against what he has. And so I think that could be an interpretation of this. Listen, when we have condemnation of our hearts that we haven't been stepping up, we haven't been matching up. To there's a there's a fact that the Holy Spirit is within us, convicting us and moving us. That's one way we can be reassured that we're His. That could be one interpretation of that. I don't want to get into the other one right now, but because I, I, I think that's what it means. The Holy Spirit's going to be convict the believer, and we can be assured that when that happens, that God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. So the fact that the Lord convicts and disciplines us, that reassures us that we are his and, is tr- and we are in the truth. Secondly, verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. The second way in which we have confidence before God is that our heart does not condemn us because we're walking uh, we're walking before him in righteousness, keeping his pants, loving one another. Okay? This is stuff he's already taught. And the result of that abiding relationship is we have a peace with the Lord. We have a peace in our hearts that is in step with the Spirit. And again, John is just recalling Jesus' words in John fifteen seven through 8. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. And by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When we're walking in harmony with the Lord, we pray according to his will and he answers us. This is one of the ways that we know that we're walking in him. All right. We have confidence. Verse 23. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment, verse 24, abides in God. And God in Him, again. And this is what we know. This and He goes. And this is. In, in and He has a tagline at the end, which leads us to the next section. He says, "And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us." Um. A lot there, guys. I know it's a lot. It took me a lot to try to go through this, but John wants you to have assurance of your salvation. So the question is. Am I walking righteously? Are there areas where the Holy Spirit's been convicting us over and we need to listen to him and respond in obedience? Secondly, are we loving one another? Are we practically loving one another? Or are we allowing hate to be manifested in our hearts? I want to close by reading Matthew 25, just verses 31 through 46. Please open there in your own Bibles. Matthew 25. Jesus, the masterful teacher, has a way of letting us know the big picture. He gives us a a foreshadow of what's coming. Matthew 25, verse 31, I'll begin there. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. And all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right. But the goats will be on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come. You who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Why? Verse 35. For I was hungry and you what? You gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink and I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Verse 37, and then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when when did we see you hungry and feed you or or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Verse 40, and the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my what? did it to what? He did it to me. Verse 41. And then he will say it to those on the left. Depart from me, you cursed into eternal what? Prepared for the devil and his angels. Those of you who don't believe in hell, this is the passage you need to go to. Verse 42. For I was hungry and you gave me what? No food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. and You did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison. And you did not visit me. Verse 44. Then they also will answer and saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or in stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Verse 45. Then he will answer them and saying, truly I say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these You did not do it to me. And these will go away into what kind of punishment? Eternal punishment. But the righteous into what? Eternal life. What is the defining difference between these two? Love and obedience. Love and obedience. Lord God. You sit on your glorious, holy, magnificent throne in a, in a heaven that we can't even begin to ponder with myriads of angels around you ministering to you and crying out to you and thunders and lightnings and rainbows and just glassy sea and all the things we see. You are timeless, timeless. You require that those who worship you, worship you in spirit and truth, and you have sent your son to redeem rebels from the darkness and bring them into your kingdom. That we would be one as you are one. That we would love as you love. That we would be righteous as you are righteous. And we recognize this is not a righteousness of our own. It is a righteousness only found in Christ. And so, we first of all just want to thank You for the act that You've done of loving us so deeply and thoroughly, sending Your Son and changing us. We believe that He died and rose again. And Lord, we want to repent of our unrighteousness and the anger in our hearts for our brothers and those around us. We ask that You would fill us with a love In light of the love you've given us. And so, Lord, today we move forward in grace. We ask that your Spirit would sensitize us once again to your will, to your word, to your heart, that we would not be fooled into thinking that we are something we're not. So by your grace, sanctify us and move us today as you see fit. All glory and honor to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.